Volume the Third, Chapter Two of Caleb Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Darvinia. Caleb Williams by William Godwin. Volume the Third, Chapter Two. In this woeful situation, though extremely weak, I was not deprived of sense. I tore my shirt from my naked body, and endeavoured, with some success, to make of it a bandage to staunch the flowing of the blood. I then exerted myself to crawl up the side of the ditch. I had scarcely effected the latter, when, with equal surprise and joy, I perceived a man advancing at no great distance. I called for help as well as I could. The man came towards me with evident signs of compassion and the appearance I exhibited was indeed sufficiently calculated to excite it. I had no hat, my hair was dishevelled, and the ends of the locks clotted with blood. My shirt was wrapped about my neck and shoulders, and was plentifully stained with red. My body, which was naked to my middle, was variegated with streams of blood, nor had my lower garments, which were white, by any means escaped." "'For God's sake, my good fellow,' said he, with a tone of the greatest imaginable kindness, "'how came you thus?' And saying this, he lifted me up, and set me on my feet. "'Can you stand?' added he, doubtfully. "'Oh, yes, very well,' I replied. Having received this answer, he quitted me, and began to take off his own coat, that he might cover me from the cold.' I had, however, overrated my strength, and was no sooner left to myself than I reeled, and fell almost at my length upon the ground. But I broke my fall by stretching out my sound arm, and again raised myself upon my knees. My benefactor now covered me, raised me, and bidding me lean upon him, told me he would presently conduct me to a place where I should be taken care of. Courage is a capricious property and though while I had no one to depend upon but myself, I possessed a mine of seemingly inexhaustible fortitude. Yet no sooner did I find this unexpected sympathy on the part of another, than my resolution appeared to give way, and I felt ready to faint. My charitable conductor perceived this, and every now and then encouraged me, in a manner so cheerful, so good-humoured and benevolent, equally free from the torture of droning expostulation, and the weakness of indulgence, that I thought myself under the conduct of an angel, rather than a man. I could perceive that his behaviour had in it nothing of boorishness, and that he was thoroughly imbued with the principles of affectionate civility. We walked about three-quarters of a mile, and that not towards the open, but the most uncouth and unfrequented part of the forest. We crossed a place which had once been a moat, but which was now in some parts dry, and in others contained a little muddy and stagnated water. Within the enclosure of this moat I could only discover a pile of ruins, and several walls, the upper part of which seemed to overhang their foundations, and to totter to their ruin. After having entered, however, with my conductor through an archway, and passed along a winding passage that was perfectly dark, we came to a stand. At the upper end of this passage was a door, which I was unable to perceive. My conductor knocked at the door, and was answered by a voice from within, which for body and force might have been the voice of a man, 
but with a sort of female sharpness and acidity, inquiring, "'Who's there?' Satisfaction was no sooner given on this point than I heard two bolts pushed back, and the door unlocked. The apartment opened, and we entered. The interior of this habitation by no means corresponded with the appearance of my protector, but, on the contrary, wore the face of discomfort, carelessness, and dirt. The only person I saw within was a woman, rather advanced in life, and whose person had I know not what of extraordinary and loathsome. Her eyes were red and bloodshot, her hair was pendant in matted and shaggy tresses about her shoulders, her complexion swarthy and of the consistency of parchment, her form spare, and her whole body, her arms in particular, uncommonly vigorous and muscular. Not the milk of human kindness, but the feverous blood of savage ferocity seemed to flow from her heart, and her whole figure suggested an idea of unmitigable energy, and an appetite gorged in malevolence. This infernal Thalestris had no sooner cast her eyes upon us as we entered, than she exclaimed in a discordant and discontented voice, "'What have we got here? This is not one of our people.' My conductor, without answering this apostrophe, bade her push an easy-chair, which stood in one corner, and set it directly before the fire. This she did with apparent reluctance, murmuring, "'Ah, you're at your old tricks. I wonder what such folks as we have to do with charity. It will be the ruin of us at last, I can see that.' "'Hold your tongue, Beldam,' said he, with a stern significance of manner and fetch one of my best shirts, a waistcoat, and some dressings. Saying this, he at the same time put into her hand a small bunch of keys. In a word, he treated me with as much kindness as if he had been my father. He examined my wound, washed and dressed it, at the same time that the old woman, by his express order, prepared for me such nourishment as he thought most suitable to my weak and languid condition. These operations were no sooner completed than my benefactor recommended to me to retire to rest, and preparations were making for that purpose, when suddenly a trampling of feet was heard, succeeded by a knock at the door. The old woman opened the door with the same precautions as had been employed upon our arrival, and immediately six or seven persons tumultuously entered the apartment. Their appearance was different, some having the air of mere rustics, and others that of a tarnished sort of gentry. All had a feature of boldness, inquietude, and disorder, extremely unlike anything I had before observed in such a group. But my astonishment was still increased, when upon a second glance I perceived something in the general air of several of them, and of one in particular, that persuaded me they were the gang from which I had just escaped and this one the antagonist by whose animosity I was so near having been finally destroyed. I imagined they had entered the hovel with a hostile intention, that my benefactor was upon the point of being robbed, and I probably murdered. This suspicion, however, was soon removed. They addressed my conductor with respect, under the appellation of captain. They were boisterous and noisy in their remarks and exclamations, 
but their turbulence was tempered by a certain deference to his opinion and authority. I could observe in the person who had been my active opponent some awkwardness and irresolution as he first perceived me, which he dismissed with a sort of effort, exclaiming, "'Who the devil is here?' There was something in the tone of this apostrophe that roused the attention of my protector. He looked at the speaker with a fixed and penetrating glance, and then said, "'Nay, Gines, do you know? Did you ever see the person before?' "'Curse it, Gines,' interrupted a third. "'You are damnably out of luck. They say dead men walk, and you see there is some truth in it.' "'Truce with your impertinence, Jekylls,' replied my protector. "'This is no proper occasion for a joke. Answer me, Gines. Were you the cause of this young man being left naked and wounded this bitter morning upon the forest?' "'Mayhap I was. What then?' "'What provocation could induce you to so cruel a treatment?' "'Provocation enough. He had no money.' "'What, did you use him thus, without so much as being irritated by any resistance on his part?' "'Yes, he did resist. I only hustled him, and he had the impudence to strike me.' "'Gines, you are an incorrigible fellow.' what signifies what I am? You, with your compassion and your fine feelings, will bring us all to the gallows. I have nothing to say to you. I have no hopes of you. Comrades, it is for you to decide upon the conduct of this man as you think proper. You know how repeated his offences have been. You know what pains I have taken to mend him. Our profession is the profession of justice." It is thus that the prejudices of men universally teach them to colour the most desperate cause to which they have determined to adhere. We who are thieves without a licence are at open war with another set of men who are thieves according to law. With such a cause, then, to bear us out, shall we stain it with cruelty, malice, and revenge? A thief is, of course, a man living among his equals. I do not pretend, therefore, to assume any authority among you. Act as you think proper, but so far as relates to myself, I vote that Gines be expelled from among us as a disgrace to our society. This proposition seemed to meet the general sense. It was easy to perceive that the opinion of the rest coincided with that of their leader, notwithstanding which a few of them hesitated as to the conduct to be pursued. In the meantime Gines muttered something in a surly and irresolute way about taking care how they provoked him. This insinuation instantly roused the courage of my protector, and his eyes flashed with contempt. "'Rascal!' said he. "'Do you menace us? Do you think we will be your slaves? No, no, do your worst. Go to the next justice of the peace and impeach us. I can easily believe you are capable of it.' "'Sir, when we entered into this gang, we were not such fools as not to know that we entered upon a service of danger. One of its dangers consists in the treachery of fellows like you. But we did not enter at first to flinch now. Did you believe that we would live in hourly fear of you, tremble at your threats and compromise whenever you should so please, with your insolence? That would be a blessed life indeed.' I would rather see my flesh torn piecemeal from my bones. Go, sir, 
I defy you. You dare not do it. You dare not sacrifice these gallant fellows to your rage, and publish yourself to all the world a traitor and a scoundrel. If you do, you will punish yourself, not us. Be gone. The intrepidity of the leader communicated itself to the rest of the company. Gines easily saw that there was no hope of bringing them over to a contrary sentiment. After a short pause he answered, "'I did not mean—no, damn it, I will not snivel neither. I was always true to my principles, and a friend to you all. But since you are resolved to turn me out, why, good-bye to you.' The expulsion of this man produced a remarkable improvement in the whole gang. Those who were before inclined to humanity assumed new energy in proportion as they saw such sentiments likely to prevail. They had before suffered themselves to be overborne by the boisterous insolence of their antagonist. But now they adopted, and with success, a different conduct. Those who envied the ascendancy of their comrade, and therefore imitated his conduct, began to hesitate in their career. Stories were brought forward of the cruelty and brutality of Gines, both to men and animals, which had never before reached the ear of the leader. The stories I shall not repeat. They could excite only emotions of abhorrence and disgust, and some of them argued a mind of such a stretch of depravity, as to many readers would appear utterly incredible. And yet this man had his virtues. He was enterprising, persevering, and faithful. His removal was a considerable benefit to me. It would have been no small hardship to have been turned adrift immediately under my unfavourable circumstances, with the additional disadvantage of the wound I had received. And yet I could scarcely have ventured to remain under the same roof with a man, to whom my appearance was, as a guilty conscience, perpetually reminding him of his own offence, and the displeasure of his leader. His profession accustomed him to a certain degree of indifference to consequences, and indulgence to the sallies of passion, and he might easily have found his opportunity to insult or injure me, when I should have had nothing but my own debilitated exertions to protect me. Freed from this danger, I found my situation sufficiently fortunate for a man under my circumstances. It was attended with all the advantages for concealment my fondest imagination could have hoped, and it was by no means destitute of the benefits which arise from kindness and humanity. Nothing could be more unlike than the thieves I had seen in jail, and the thieves of my new residence. The latter were generally full of cheerfulness and merriment. They could expatiate freely wherever they thought proper. They could form plans and execute them. They consulted their inclinations. They did not impose upon themselves the task, as is too often the case in human society, of seeming tacitly to approve that from which they suffered most, or, which is worst, of persuading themselves that all the wrongs they suffered were right, but were at open war with their oppressors. On the contrary, the imprisoned felons I had lately seen were shut up like wild beasts in a cage, deprived of activity and palsied with indolence. The occasional demonstrations that still remained of their former enterprising life were the starts and convulsions of disease, 
not the meditated and consistent exertions of a mind in health. They had no more of hope, of project, of golden and animated dreams, but were reserved to the most dismal prospects, and forbidden to think upon any other topic. It is true that these two scenes were parts of one whole, the one the consummation, the hourly to be expected successor of the other. But the men I now saw were wholly inattentive to this, and in that respect appeared to hold no commerce with reflection or reason. I might, in one view, as I have said, congratulate myself upon my present residence. It answered completely the purposes of concealment. It was the seat of merriment and hilarity, but the hilarity that characterized it produced no corresponding feelings in my bosom. The persons who composed this society had, each of them, cast off all control from established principle. Their trade was terror, and their constant object to elude the vigilance of the community. The influence of these circumstances was visible in their character. I found among them benevolence and kindness. They were strongly susceptible of emotions of generosity. But, as their situation was precarious, their dispositions were proportionably fluctuating. Inured to the animosity of their species, they were irritable and passionate. Accustomed to exercise harshness towards the subject of their depredations, they did not always confine their brutality within that scope. They were habituated to consider wounds and bludgeons and stabbing as the obvious mode of surmounting every difficulty. Uninvolved in the debilitating routine of human affairs, they frequently displayed an energy which, from every impartial observer, would have extorted veneration. Energy is perhaps of all qualities the most valuable, and a just political system would possess the means of extracting from it, thus circumstanced, its beneficial qualities, instead of consigning it, as now, to indiscriminate destruction. We act like the chemist, who should reject the finest ore, and employ none but what was sufficiently debased to fit it immediately for the vilest uses. But the energy of these men, such as I beheld it, was in the highest degree misapplied, unassisted by liberal and enlightened views, and directed only to the most narrow and contemptible purposes. The residence I have been describing might to many persons have appeared attended with intolerable inconveniences. But, exclusively of its advantages as a field for speculation, it was Elysium, compared with that from which I had just escaped. Displeasing company, incommodious apartments, filthiness and riot, lost the circumstance by which they could most effectually disgust when I was not compelled to remain with them. All hardships I could patiently endure, in comparison with the menace of a violent and untimely death. There was no suffering that I could not persuade myself to consider as trivial, except that which flowed from the tyranny, the frigid precaution, or the inhuman revenge of my own species. My recovery advanced in the most favourable manner. The attention and kindness of my protector were incessant, and the rest caught the spirit from his example. The old woman who superintended the household still retained her animosity. 
she considered me as the cause of the expulsion of Gines from the fraternity. Gines had been the object of her particular partiality, and zealous as she was for the public concern, she thought an old and experienced sinner, for a raw probationer, but an ill exchange. Add to which, that her habits inclined her to moroseness and discontent, and that persons of her complexion seem unable to exist without some object upon which to pour out the superfluity of their gall. She lost no opportunity, upon the most trifling occasion, of displaying her animosity, and ever and anon eyed me with a furious glance of canine hunger for my destruction. Nothing was more evidently mortifying to her than the procrastination of her malice, nor could she bear to think that a fierceness so gigantic and uncontrollable should show itself in nothing more terrific than the pygmy spite of a chambermaid. For myself I had been accustomed to the warfare of formidable adversaries, and the encounter of alarming dangers. But what I saw of her spleen had not power sufficient to disturb my tranquillity. As I recovered, I told my story, except so far as related to the detection of Mr. Falkland's eventful secret, to my protector. That particular I could not, as yet, prevail upon myself to disclose, even in a situation like this, which seemed to preclude the possibility of its being made use of, to the disadvantage of my persecutor. My present auditor, however, whose habits of thinking were extremely opposite to those of Mr. Forrester, did not, from the obscurity which flowed from this reserve, deduce any unfavourable conclusion. His penetration was such as to afford little room for an impostor to hope to mislead him by a fictitious statement, and he confided in that penetration. So confiding, the simplicity and integrity of my manner carried conviction to his mind, and ensured his good opinion and friendship. He listened to my story with eagerness, and commented on the several parts as I related them. He said that this was only one fresh instance of the tyranny and perfidiousness exercised by the powerful members of the community against those who were less privileged than themselves. Nothing could be more clear than their readiness to sacrifice the human species at large to their meanest interest, or wildest caprice. Who that saw the situation in its true light would wait till their oppressors thought fit to decree their destruction, and not take arms in their defence while it was yet in their power? Which was most meritorious, the unresisting and dastardly submissions of a slave, or the enterprise and gallantry of the man who dared to assert his claims. Since, by the partial administration of our laws, innocence, when power was armed against it, had nothing better to hope for than guilt, what man of true courage would fail to set these laws at defiance, and if he must suffer by their injustice, at least take care that he had first shown his contempt of their yoke? For himself— he should certainly never have embraced his present calling, had he not been stimulated to it by these cogent and irresistible reasons. And he hoped, as experience had so forcibly brought a conviction of this sort to my mind, that he should, for the future, have the happiness to associate me to his pursuits. It will presently be seen with what event these hopes were attended. 
numerous were the precautions exercised by the gang of thieves with whom I now resided, to elude the vigilance of the satellites of justice. It was one of their rules to commit no depredations, but at a considerable distance from the place of their residence, and Gines had transgressed this regulation in the attack to which I was indebted for my present asylum. After having possessed themselves of any booty, they took care, in the sight of the persons whom they had robbed, to pursue a route as nearly as possible opposite to that which led to their true haunts. The appearance of their place of residence, together with its environs, was particularly desolate and forlorn, and it had the reputation of being haunted. The old woman I have described had long been its inhabitant, and was commonly supposed to be its only inhabitant, and her person well accorded with the rural ideas of a witch. Her lodgers never went out or came in, but with the utmost circumspection, and generally by night. The lights, which were occasionally seen from various parts of her habitation, were, by the country people, regarded with horror as supernatural, and if the noise of revelry at any time saluted their ears, it was imagined to proceed from a carnival of devils. With all these advantages, the thieves did not venture to reside here, but by intervals. They frequently absented themselves for months, and removed to a different part of the country. The old woman sometimes attended them in these transportations, and sometimes remained. But in all cases, her decampment took place either sooner or later than theirs, so that the nicest observer could scarcely have traced any connection between her reappearance and the alarms of depredation that were frequently given, and the festival of demons seemed, to the terrified rustics, indifferently to take place whether she were present or absent. End of chapter 2 of Volume the Third